This is the RSM Orthopedic Section Podcast. We feature global experts and key opinion leaders discussing innovation, progress, and current practice within their subspecialties. My name is Akib Khan, and I'm an orthopedic registrar on the Section Council, and I'll be your host on this podcast. Welcome. Today, we're joined by none other than Professor Heather Vallier, who is a trauma and orthopedic professor based in Cleveland in the United States. She is the 36th president of the Orthopedic Trauma Association and holds a professorship at the Case Western University. We're so glad to have her join us at the Royal Society of Medicine. She's been a keynote speaker at the recent trauma symposium and has a wealth of experience. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Akib. It's a real honor and a delight to be here with you. Uh, we were really captivated by all of the talks that you delivered at this year's Trauma Symposium. And I was hoping we could start the podcast by speaking a bit about the psychology of trauma. And I know this is an area that that you're quite passionate about. So, so how important is it to take a holistic view of trauma patients? I think that's the key to really um, optimizing their recovery course. You know, it's something that when I was in medical school and throughout residency, you know, we, we learned a lot about the traditional aspects of providing care medically, surgically, uh, and, and fine details around the technical and other aspects of orthopedic surgery. But um, we take care of people, and people have all varying types of, of underlying psychological, social, and economic stressors that really have been shown in, in recent years to have a more profound impact on how they do Uh after surgery for various musculoskeletal diseases and certainly in the trauma population following injury. And one of the things I found really interesting was um, sort of the the approach that we should be taking. And one of the phrases that you used, and, and you, you took a poll of everyone in the audience, was how many of you have heard a patient say, I thought I was going to die um, when they've had a traumatic incident? And actually quite a few people put their hands up. And perhaps it's something that we, we don't really you know, as, as, as orthopedic surgeons don't really think about how important is that question and, and how can we best screen for patients who may be at risk of developing PTSD? Sure. So that's a great question. Um, a few years back, uh, one of the members on our research team, Sarah Hendrickson, um, had brought that up and we were in the process of doing some prospective work looking at PTSD in our own uh, trauma system and trying to identify specific risk factors and mitigation strategies. And she mentioned that many patients would say that. And I said, oh my goodness, I've heard that many dozens of times and, and, and it certainly is a problem. And so we decided to prospectively measure it while we were doing various PTSD screening tools. And it turned out that patients who re- would report they, a fear of death at the time of their injury event we're over 13 times more likely to be very positive for PTSD by all of the, the survey types that we use. And so we've been teaching it now to our medical students and to our residents, and we wrote a paper on it, which was published last year in JAS, uh, about the utility of just using that simple question as a screening tool. So many people get intimidated and say, well, I have to have a a survey form or an online screen in my electronic record for the patients to do all these survey questions. And while that's nice and it would be great to have more information, really this is very simple. Um, and, and certainly there are patients who may not answer yes to that question, but still may have stigmata of, of PTSD. 
And so I don't want to get too far into the weeds, but it's a really easy thing to remember if someone says that to you, certainly if they volunteer that information, but, but really easy to ask when you first meet them and you learn about their injury mechanism. And, and when you do ask that question, you get a response back that the patient actually, you know, is at risk of, of developing psychological trauma as well as, you know, their, their orthopedic trauma. How important is that early identification? Does it actually have an impact on orthopedic recovery? Um, uh, you know, how can it help us tailor our, our management strategies? Right. Well, we know that people who have distress to the level where they carry a formal diagnosis of PTSD or perhaps some type of a generalized anxiety disorder, which is quite common with PTSD symptoms, um, are going to have a protracted recovery. So they're going to recover more slowly. They're going to be less inclined to engage in physical activities, even when you release them to do so. They're going to be less inclined to engage in social activities, maybe from their prior cadre of, of uh, vocational, recreational things that they did before the injury. And so it's going to greatly impair their recovery course in time. And it also is likely to diminish the fullness of their recovery. And so in order to get some more objective terms on that, that's an area that we're, we're continuing investigation to see how profound it is. But one thing that this has raised is that the uh, American Psychiatric Association has a number of days where they say, oh, it should be six months or three months minimum after an injury event before this diagnosis could be made. And they've been scaling that back further and further because there's a whole new school of thought saying that, well, many of these patients technically have PTSD right away. They're having symptoms of it. So why would we wait? to say, oh, you have a diagnosis now, let's do something about it. And so we're being very proactive and going with the idea that if they're meeting these diagnostic criteria and we can um, share that with them and provide them with some type of counseling, individual therapy, group support, uh, sometimes medications, they'll have a, a better recovery course because we're going to identify that early on and, and help them to get on top of it. So, so perhaps it's not only just better patient care, but it's actually cost effective. I think that was something else that you were saying, you know, if we can identify and treat these patients early, actually as a health system, as a trauma unit, you can actually, you know, save money as well. It's kind of surprising and, and it's, it, it's interesting, but we've looked at a lot of measurements of um, follow-up care. And so how often do patients return with a complication related to their initial injury event? How often are they readmitted to the hospital for whatever reason following trauma, which may even be a social reason more than a medical or surgical complication? Um, how often do they return with a completely unrelated injury event, like a true trauma recidivist and uh, underlying mental illness, which may have been present prior to injury or may have been completely brought on by that injury event is the greatest risk factor for any of those things, which is kind of crazy because we think, oh, well, Certainly, if, they're, if they have diabetes mellitus, they're going to be at more risk. And I'm not denying that. There are many risk factors. But uh, untreated mental illness is, is having a profound impact on um, recovery of our patients in the United States. And I think a lot of this work carries over to other developed nations. You know, from um, what I know, my friends in the UK and throughout other parts of, of Europe, um, I think the, the patient populations are really not all that all that different in terms of the stressors that they face in their lives. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it kind of 
really hones in the argument that actually all trauma units should have access to psychology services. And in fact, that that should be a cornerstone to um to patient treatment. And and I believe you set up a program as well within within your hospital where where such a service was provided and actually it helped build resilience, not just amongst patients, but also amongst staff as well. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. About 10 years ago, um, we, we were part of a, a multi-center grant to establish some programming, including a uh, trauma recovery coach counselor who would be available for patients and families. And it was a very crude, simple program when we started and really only about 10 to 15% of patients were actually engaging within the first several months. But the program has grown numbers and in the types of services too. And so in addition to this, you know, PTSD screening, there's counseling available for inpatients and outpatients with referrals for higher levels of psychiatric care, depending on needs. There's group support. There's a peer mentorship program, which is really powerful. Doesn't cost a lot of money. Isn't terribly difficult to set up where old trauma patients will come back and they'll make some visits in the hospital. They have a huge impact on new patients because the new patients remember that person and they realize, wow, this person made it through two years ago. I can do it too. And the nurses love it. They love to see that the old patients come back. Often they'll remember them and they feel like, hey, our work is really making a difference because look, Mr. Jones is here and he went back to work, you know, two months after he left the hospital. And he's okay now. And so there's this spinoff effect that we didn't even think about in terms of just the healthcare providers. And since the programming as a whole went up, we realized that our nurses were um, on average more satisfied with their jobs. And we did a, a formal study on this too, because we were having a lot of workforce attrition in our hospital system. But the nurses on the trauma units had better satisfaction scores and also were very unlikely to leave their position for any reason. Um, and and we, we attribute it to the success of the recovery services programming. And, and so it's had a lot of, of um, unintentional effects on staff, I know I feel better about it. And the multi-center group that we work with, uh, which is called uh, Metric in the United States, measured this amongst uh, trauma surgeons. And 90% of them expressed greater job satisfaction because they knew that there were some resources available where they could refer patients for these things that we're not really trained to take care of. And often our hospital systems are under-resourced to take care of. So with a little bit of support, it certainly goes a long way. It, it's really changed my outlook on the impact that we can have. That's truly fantastic. Um, maybe we can segue slightly across into uh, the trauma care of patients when they actually come into hospital. And one of the things which I really wanted to speak with you about was the idea, idea of early appropriate care and kind of the progression of an evolution of trauma care, um, at least in modern times. Any any sort of key points or a brief summary that, that you can talk us through? Yeah, it's, that's also been a, an area of interest of mine. And, and I think back in the um, in 90s when I was a, in medical school and then as a, an orthopedic surgery resident, um, I, I really enjoyed the trauma patients, the, the polytrauma patients. It was very interesting, a lot of physiology. They would come in, many of them with life-threatening hemorrhage related to their injuries and looking at the positive impact that we could have by stabilizing their fractures and helping them to get well. But I was a little bit dismayed um, it, during my training when I would see patients who came in with, um, say, a mechanically unstable pelvic ring injury or an acetabulum um, because 
Whereas if they had a thermal shaft fracture, most of the time they would be physiologically ready and on the OR schedule like the following day. They would get a thermal nail and they'd be up and moving. Yet these patients with injuries that were slightly more complicated may lay in traction for three days, five days. Some of them will become really unwell, have a lot of pulmonary complications. Occasionally someone would die. And it struck me that those injuries are really affecting the person pretty similar to how that femur did, but we were very aggressive about managing the femurs. Of course, it's technically an easier operation. More surgeons are very comfortable doing it. And so it's, it's, it's uh, a little bit simpler to provide that care, even if the patient has other injuries. And so I think that that has a lot to do with it. There aren't as many people capable of managing uh, com complex acetabulum or perhaps a spine uh, fracture that's complicated, but you know, warrant surgical care. And so as I became a trauma fellow, I noticed there was a little bit more of an aggressive uh, tactic in that institution in Seattle, Washington, um, about managing some of these injuries earlier and got to talking with some of the faculty about their experiences and, and they agreed. Yeah, you know, we really need to do that, but that's not really standard of care. And so it kind of stuck with me as I went into practice uh, and um, decided, well, I'm going to try to really do my best to provide care for, you know, rings, acetabulums, everything that I can that's relegating that person to a recumbent position in bed and often with skeletal traction because it just seems so bad for the physiology within a couple of days. If they didn't get the OR, they were really going to get sick. They, they developed uh, atelectasis, pneumonias really rapidly, and then sometimes a cascade of, of multiple organ failure, which could result in death. And so knowing that, there were a number of other other physicians um, at the trauma center where I was working who were really interested in this as well. And I feel like as a whole, we were kind of challenging each other to provide team-based care and pay attention to expediting the care of the patients with these major injuries. And so we embarked um, on a research study uh, about 15 years ago now to look at what parameters could we come up with to determine a, a patient's readiness to tolerate some of these operations? And you see, come in and, and go, oh, everybody should do damage control. Okay, well, damage control refers to some type of provisional stabilization. Maybe it's an external fixator or some skeletal traction or something. The patient's too sick to have the definitive operation, and they may experience a second hit of profound systemic inflammation, which may push them over the top into that organ failure and even into, into death. But the reality was that we didn't understand, you know, how do we determine that? What factors are we going by? And there, there have been a number of, of laboratory values, uh, types of injuries, um, vital signs, various factors that have been proposed over the years, but there wasn't really any prospective work going on to assess this and to say, well, how do we know? There were a lot of experts who treated many thousands of patients, and that was kind of what we were developing in our own little world at our trauma hospital. But we ended up hiring a, a mathematician and, and doctorate-level biostatistician to take all of our data on um, the recovery course, so what types of blood products, fluid resuscitation, other things were happening, time-based from the time of injury forward, what injuries did they have orthopedically and injuries to other systems, age, all of their lab values, and then to develop some probability modeling over when did it appear to be a safe time to proceed with fixation of those injuries? Did it matter if it was a, you know, a pelvis versus a thermal shaft or what mattered? And it's an interesting thing because 
there's a lot of stuff that matters. And, and I feel like whenever I speak about this, it's very easy to say like, oh, you're oversimplifying. But the reality is, is we need to try to package things in a way that we can get our arms around as clinicians to draw some generalities, knowing that it's a little bit of a gray area. Um, and the things that seem to matter most about reducing complications in patients with these injuries who require treatment surgically, or, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you the injuries that we focused on, they were a mechanically unstable thoracolumbar lumbar spine, a pelvic ring injury, a displaced acetabular fracture, or a proximal or diaphyseal fracture of the penis. Any of those injuries we felt were ones that we would treat surgically and the patient would need to be in bed until the injury was reduced and stabilized for them to get up. And so in some of those, you could do a damage control strategy you know, with, with provisional aspects and some not so much. But the things that mattered most when we looked at our experience of looking at close to 1,500 patients with those types of fractures, and some patients had more than one of those types of fractures, um, the presence of a severe chest injury was a bad actor. And there's a fair amount of literature, you know, dating back to the late 80s, early 90s, you know, showing how poorly patients can do if they've got a severe chest injury. And there's always a concern like, oh, are we being too aggressive? Maybe if we do too much surgery, that's going to make their chest injury worse. But the reality is they've got a bad chest injury. If we lay them in bed too long, that's actually even worse. And so knowing that they're going to be at higher risk for complications is important, but we can't change the fact that they have a chest injury. It just pushes them into a higher risk category. And then we looked at the timing of definitive fixation. And so all comers recognizing that in our experience, perhaps there were some patients who had their definitive fixation by what we would consider too early, maybe not well, well enough resuscitated, because that was just our historical experience. So we noticed that if patients had been stabilized earlier in the whole group, they tended on average to do better than those that were stabilized more than 40 plus hours following the injury event. They like, go, oh, 40 hours. That's interesting because much of the literature, especially with femur, says, oh, 24. But if you look back, a lot of that's just retrospective sampling. And it's just, well, anybody that can fix within the first 24 hours of either injury or 24 hours of presentation to the, the hospital, we're in that group. And that's considered early because we just put a one-day cutoff on it. Because that's how it, how it was just done. Um, it, it seems that around 40 hours or so, best we could tell, there's some changes that happen physiologically. You know, and maybe people who are a little older have less cardiopulmonary reserve. It happens a little earlier for them. But if they're not able to get seated up you know, those fractures aren't reduced and stabilized by that point, they started to really have some pulmonary decline and other decline. And that was pretty apparent when we looked at the data as a whole. The other piece was the uh, type timing of the resuscitation and measuring resuscitation in terms of their response to food and blood products, whatever uh, was needed to restore a normal um, acid-base environment. And so, you know, many patients, when they're injured, will have bleeding. And because of that bleeding, they're going to have reduced oxygen carrying capacity. So that hypooxygenation is going to result in some acidosis. And if the injuries are pretty profound, the acidosis can likewise be profound. It, of course, can be affected by ingestion of alcohol, um, diabetes, you know, poor glycemic control, various other elements. But some type of a measurement of acidosis, lactate, base excess, pH was important in determining readiness for surgery. And so the patient didn't need to be completely normal in their acid-base profile, but they needed to be improving. 
And we were able to establish a cutoff point of a lactate of less than four, which is pretty high still, but, but if it's improving, a base SX of negative five, five or better, and a pH of greater than or equal to 7.25. So you know, patients in that group that, that seem to be okay, according to our risk factor um, means, really uh, said, those are the ones that we wanted to, to take to the operating room that we thought we could safely do their surgery. And so this was an effort that took, I, I must say, a, a number of months just to get all the data organized, analyzed. And then our multidisciplinary team, which included neurosurgeons, orthopedic spine surgeons, general trauma critical care specialists, anesthesiologists, kind of putting our heads together to say, well, what are we going to do with this information? Can we decide as a group that our hospital is going to try to establish a, a protocol? which will we'll assess readiness for surgical intervention by these resuscitative criteria. And that's essentially what we did. It, it took a little while to get everybody on board, all the surgeons to agree, and the system say, yes, we'll, we'll make sure that there's an operating room available every day for these patients that are in that group, because we would have about 15 to 20 of them per month that were that multiple injured type patient who would come in and need that resuscitation and qualify for this type of, of work. And so um, it was it was a fun experience, just from a professional sidebar, trying to learn how to do better. And we did. We improved our complication rates. And we noticed that there's still a few areas that this doesn't, it's not a perfect fit. You know, maybe patients are really frail or they've got an extremely severe head injury or they have an ongoing uh, myocardial event or poor um, cerebral status and may have been having uh, a supervascular uh, bleed or thrombus. And th those patients uh, need to be individualized aside from these criteria, but that's not very common. Most of the patients actually will fit into this group and we could study them and, and we noticed a lot of improvement. And so that's been um, built on by other people in subsequent literature. There's people who have taken those parameters and tried to incorporate some measurements of coagulopathy and looking at how that improves. And while that's important, we studied that a lot too, but it seemed that as the acidosis was correcting, the coagulopathy was correcting at the same time. So they kind of go hand in hand. And so we didn't include that in our final um, probability modeling because there was so much overlap. And, and while the acidosis has a nonspecific element to it, it actually worked really well for about 97% of our polytrauma patients. That's really incredible. What a body of work um, and, and really has revolutionized uh, trauma care in, in so many different centers around the world. And just, just so I have it clear in my head, we let's say we have a patient that comes into the trauma bay and they're, they're multiply injured. Um, and we know that we, we want to get them to the OR uh, within 40 hours. They've got spinal trauma, pelvic trauma, um, long bone fractures. We should should we be aggressively resuscitating them until they meet those physiological parameters and try to get them to within those ranges within the forty hour period and then get them to the OR 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 you know how much is too much what what do we do? Yeah, I think that um, you know the type of resuscitation and how quickly that happens. Of course, I would defer to your your critical care specialists uh, who are very versed in that in terms of, you know, is it a massive transfusion protocol where they're giving, you know, one-to-one-to-one, -to -one -to -one, um, blood, uh, factors, are they using TAG or Rotem to, to, you know, provide some detailed, um, resuscitation based on that profile? 
because those are things that are very nuanced. But the, the basic point of, of watching that acidosis correct, using those parameters still works. And so most of the patients are gonna start correcting right away. If you've done something uh, provisional, like maybe you applied a circumferential sheet or binder to their pelvis, if it's a, an open book or vertical shear type injury with a wide uh, diastasis. Um, maybe they've had some profound bleeding from the extremity injury and you applied a compressive dressing or a temporary tourniquet or something. And so you've gotten some provisional control of hemostasis and then you're refilling the tank with your resuscitation. So as that acidosis diminishes and gets you into a safe range, you want to start to plan your surgical intervention. Now, um, the trauma system that I was speaking about, you know, we had access each morning. So sometimes we would operate late at night or, you know, in the evenings and nights on the weekends if we needed to, if there were just too many patients at once. But most of the time we would try to take on those larger cases, first case in the morning. The team is fresh and you're ready to go. And it's okay because you've got that window. You know, they've, they've met their criteria maybe seven or eight hours ago. They're all right. And you can go. Or if it looks like, well, they just got here at 3 a.m. and we're still working toward it. We checked a lactate at 5 a.m. and it was 5.2, but it's coming down. Maybe you say, well, let's go to the OR with another patient for a couple hours. We'll finish something else up. We'll recheck some labs and maybe bring them in to follow. So it requires a little bit of communication, planning, making sure that patients are continuing to improve. But most of them are going to keep improving because you have that window. And if they're not um, getting control of hemostasis, you may need to do some emergency surgery because they're bleeding profoundly a bad spleen or do, do an embolization of something that, you know, that's causing this life-threatening hemorrhage um, so that they can have, have their orthopedic uh, injury addressed safely. Thank you. Now, um, last few minutes here, I, I really wanted to touch on this last topic and maybe a few uh, words on this. Metric studies, you mentioned a bit earlier on um, in, in our discussions. What do you think the impact on trauma care is going to be from all the studies coming out from metric? And are there any key publications or studies that we should know about and be keeping our eyes open for? Yeah, that's a great question. So, so metric is the major extremity trauma research uh, consortium. We started about, gosh, maybe 12 years ago or so um, through some leaders at Johns Hopkins School of Public Health, specifically Ellen McKenzie, and Mike Bossy, who's now retired as from an orthopedic trauma surgery standpoint, also had a military background and was able to connect military and civilian sites to uh, petition to the Department of Defense in the United States to get a large research grant to look at how we can improve the care of injured people. Um, at the time this was going on, there were a fair number of veterans that had returned from various conflicts in the Middle East. And so the burden of orthopedic infections amputations, things like this is pretty uh, economically profound. And so the United States Department of Defense was interested in finding out how can we mitigate the burden, recognizing that there are differences between the military and civilian sides, of course, in terms of the types of injuries they have, but there's some overlap. And there was an opportunity to create a network of centers where we could pool data and so develop some um, institutional review board, you know, safety and ethics profile groups that could um, expedite the uh, institution of new studies, data sharing mechanisms that would be put in place, shared statistical support so that we could get a bunch of studies going. And so some of the areas of emphasis have been on, again, reducing infection, improving bone healing, 
improving some of the physical outcomes, so better ambulation, better return to work, um, better uh, prosthetics. Um, and then that there's a there's a, a group within metric that was very interested in sort of the psychosocial aspects, and that's how I I got interested from that that study called trauma collaborative care many years back. Um, I think some of the the best work of metric to date um, has been a study that was published in in uh, JAMA, and there were some secondary publications as well looking at uh, reduction of infection by application of vancomycin powder. Now vanco powder has really been around for a long time, but it, people started putting it in wounds probably just several years ago. And then I think it caught on a lot, maybe three, four years ago in the United States. And so around that time that people were starting to pay attention to it, particularly the spine surgeons and some of the trauma surgeons, um, Metric did a randomized trial of application of a gram of ankle powder or nothing at time of definitive closure for um, type 3A or closed high energy bicondylar tibial plateaus or plafonds. So those are injuries that are reasonably high risk for soft tissue complications and infections. And the bottom line is that there was nearly a 50% reduction in surgical site infections in the vancal group. And there were a thousand patients randomized in the study. So, you know, there was really good control of all other types of, of risk factors, underlying patient comorbidities, tobacco use, et cetera. So I think that that's a nice game changer Vancomycin costs less than two U.S. dollars. It's so cheap and it's so easy to do. We haven't um, had any adverse allergies or weird, you know, local reactions to it, and so it's it's very simple. And Metrics actually just completed another study looking at the application of tobamycin and vanco together versus nothing um, to see how much that tober can help because the the gram positive cocci tend to respond, of course, to vanco, whereas gram-negative rods and other organisms may, may respond better to tobra. And so that's what that study is going to show. So I think that that's a nice game changer because it's a high-quality study. There have been other reports, but that's a large one, common fractures, really large treatment effect, very low cost. Um, a couple of the other studies that are kind of interesting are one where um, oxygen was administered, and this is actually just starting to come out. The first report was published in the Journal of Orthopedic Trauma, um, gosh, about a year ago, and it's been presented uh, at the uh, Orthopedic Trauma Association meetings as well. But looking at high flow oxygen intraoperatively versus regular flow, which is like 30% FiO2, and so high flow meaning 80%, and then for two hours after surgery, just nasocannula oxygen, which many patients will have as they come out of their anesthesia, but this is a little higher concentration. And the idea was that that will reduce infections from that same high-risk group of plateaus, plafonds, similar to the vanco population. And I have to admit, well, I remember when this protocol was coming through thinking like, oh, do you really think that's going to make a big difference? I was extremely skeptical. Um, but we did randomize about a thousand patients into that and the infections were half as frequent with the administration of oxygen. So it's like, wow. Wow. <laughs> Again, it's so easy to do. And, and, and um, the, the effect was a little more noticeable for superficial infections than for deep infections. But again, it, it costs almost nothing. It's very well tolerated. We didn't have any patients complaining about it. And uh, so I think that's another really nice takeaway. Um, perhaps my, my favorite of the metric studies in the last few years, however, though, is the Prevent Clot Study. This is a, a study um, that we did in conjunction with our general trauma colleagues um, at, at multiple centers, randomizing over 12,000 patients to low molecular weight heparin versus aspirin. 
So just an oral agent versus a sub-Q injectable agent, which is much more expensive and patients don't like it. I'm always skeptical when they're even going to do it at maybe the hospital. But that was kind of the standard of care to do the low molecular heparin prior to aspirin. People who trust aspirin, maybe it's not enough. DVT risk is high in our patients. And so the hypothesis was that aspirin be not inferior to low molecular heparin in orthopedic trauma patients who had operative or non-operative pelvic or acetabular injuries or an operative lower extremity injury. And so all of them, we would agree, should have some type of prophylaxis. And this, the study agreed on using one or the other agent by randomization for six weeks following injury. And there's there was no difference. There was no difference in pulmonary embolism, no difference in mortality, no difference in DVT proximal to the knee. There were slightly more DVT below the knee in the aspirin group. But those are ones you and I know we, we don't, we don't treat those. We don't, we don't look for them. We might pick one up kind of incidentally, um, but we don't actually recommend any anticoagulation for that. And so that study was just published uh, recently in the, the community journal of medicine. And um, I think that that's a game changer for our practice. It's it's Absolutely. Much less expensive and the patients like it better. So there'll be more papers coming out looking at patient satisfaction and the economics of the whole thing, but that's a new one. Oh, that's absolutely great. Thank you so much for joining us. We could do this all day. There are so oh, many topics sure. that I you know, <laughs> would love to ask you, but um, thank you for giving up uh, your time to, to go over those three really hot areas. So we've spoken about the psychology of trauma, about early appropriate care, and then also about metric studies at the end there. That was perfect. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. It's been a real pleasure, Akib. It's great that you're doing this. I love the uh, idea of exchanging information on this basis. Well, thanks for joining us.